Welcome to Cinema Filibuster. I'm Jonathan Sulzbach, and this is another episode from The Vault. Recorded in 2014, this episode concerns the British sci-fi film The Day the Earth Caught Fire. I only remembered this because of something I heard recently. Actor-comedian Chris Pratt told the graduating class of Lake Stevens High School that they could always remember this was the year the world caught fire. So journey back to a simpler time when the only thing on my mind and Sean's mind was, after this podcast, where are we going to go for lunch? Enjoy. And now your hosts, Sean Hastings, an author and voice actor with an honorary doctorate in woodwind horn repair. Jonathan Solzbach, writer, graphic designer, and self-publishing aficionado. Together, these fine fellows form Cinema Filibuster. And welcome to Cinema Filibuster. I am Jonathan Solzbach. And I am Sean Hastings. How are you, Sean? I'm good. How about you, John? I'm glad to be here, Sean. I'm glad to be here, too. And considering I live here, that's a good thing. <laughs> and uh, what are we talking about on today's podcast? Oh, my gosh. Today's podcast covers a film that is very near and dear to my heart. One that I discovered accidentally that has the most calamitously wrong title in movie history, but uh, a title that belies quite an impressive little film. Tootsie. That, Tootsie. <laughs> Tootsie 2, The Awakening. No, Tootsie 2, Out of the Closet. <laughs> Just kidding. Sorry. Dustin Hoffman gets to play gets to play gay like he's always wanted to. Sorry, I, just, I couldn't resist. Oh, Continue. I'm glad you. I'm glad you didn't because it worked. It worked well. the uh, The film actually is called "The Day the Earth Caught Fire." That's even better. It is, boy. Let me tell you what. That's one that'll make you run screaming from a video store. So, what in the world is this movie about? Well, it is a uh, film by noted. It's a British film by noted British. Um, science fiction film director Val Guest back in 1961 and the general plot of the film is the simultaneous detonation of Soviet and American nuclear weapons causes the Earth's axis to shift and the equator to flip uh, the attenuation, which is the oscillation of uh, the Earth on its orbital track to shift, and it also causes an 11-degree shift in the orbital track, sending us hurtling into the sun. That, that sounds like a job for Superman. It is, <laughs> except in this case it's the job for Pete Stenning, a newspaper reporter. Ooh. One of the interesting things about this film is it is told from the standpoint of a newspaper reporter named Pete Stenning, <clears throat> And his newsroom, as they have to deal with all of the clues that there's a problem. You don't ever hear a scientist or, you know, one of those guys from the uh, mid-50s who talk about giant ants. Don't ever show up. <laughs> it's all from the standpoint of a regular guy on the street, albeit a regular guy who has access to sure. copious amounts of information. And him and the rest of his newsroom put together the pieces that something is dreadfully wrong. And it's all from the standpoint of regular people who don't know anything about science. Except for uh, the science editor of the newspaper is played by Leo McKern, very, very brilliant character actor, uh, is the science editor. And he knows just enough to give gravitas to these facts. And his pronouncements are generally considered the, uh, the main uh, points that move the plot. I did notice that. Without him... They would have they been would have stuck. Been, yeah, yeah, without Leo McCurran, they would have they would have been lost. What's going on? All right. So, how did you hear about a movie called "The Day the Earth Caught Fire"? Oh dear. Well, uh, several decades ago, 
Um, I used to babysit Dalmatians for my friends, the Sinclairs. They were, uh, I was very good friends with their son, Russell, and Greg and Mary Margaret. Even after Russell moved away, Greg and Mary Margaret would go on vacations, and they'd say, hey, Sean, would you come look after our Dalmatians? They had four very hyper Dalmatians that needed to be looked after constantly. And they said, just come over to the house. You have free reign of the uh, the kitchen. You can eat whatever you want, watch whatever you want, just stay out of my underwear drawer. It's kind of the... <laughs> The, the general. So first thing, for you know, got there, I went to the underwear drawer. But <laughs> the kind of roll of quarters. Kind of roll of quarters. Yeah. Well, Greg Sinclair and I uh, are both devotees of B science fiction, and I know Greg bought this film based solely on the title. Do because think, has he ever seen uh, this lost skeleton of cadaver? Uh, I don't know that he has. Uh, he, he needs to though. He would he would just be super thrilled at that kind of a parody. But he, I'm sure, bought it as just a, you know, hey, this, the, the Earth got fire. This is going to be great. Wink, wink. Well, there I am over at the house. I've just pilfered the refrigerator. I've got cold fried chicken, a couple of pounds of mashed potatoes, a couple of biscuits, you know, and I'm just sitting down with a diet Dr. Pepper, and I'm about to put it in, and I, I look over at the wall, and I say, ooh, the day the Earth caught fire. <laughs> this is a winner. So I go pop the thing in, and... I guess 15 minutes into it, I am in love with this film. It's incredible. Really? It's it's one of the best written films I think I've ever heard. In fact, it won um, the 1961 British Academy Award for Best Screenplay. This is true. Uh, and it was written by um, a gentleman by the name Mankiewicz. Yeah, a gentleman, uh, gentleman by the uh, Wolf Mankiewicz and Val Guest, the director. The only reason I remember Mankiewicz is because um, Howard Mankiewicz wrote Superman. I was going to say, are they yeah. related? I don't know. Okay. Uh, I seem to remember Howard Mankiewicz saying that his father was a. It is Howard, right? Am I saying that correctly? Oh boy! If I'm if I'm if I'm blowing it, people please blow up the comment section, going no stupid. But anyway, Mankiewicz was the guy that. Okay. I think it was Howard Mankiewicz. Anyway, I, I can't remember because Richard Donner always Frank? called him Mank. No, because he always called him Mank. Anytime he talked about writing the movie, writing Superman, he talks about Mank. But it was. But anyway, back on track. Um, it was uh, Wolf Mankiewicz and um, Val Guest wrote it, and it's incredible the the depth of the dialogue, the depth of the characters. Uh, Pete Stenning, who is the Edward Judd. Edward Judd, yeah, played by Edward Judd. This was his first. Uh, role. Yes. He was introduced. Introduced, he has yeah. A third billing. <laughs> third, I know, he's third billing, and he's technically the, the main character in the film, or the main character in the story. He was in, I believe, um, on the commentary, uh, I'll guess, says that he was, in, he was in a lot of BBC television productions up until that point. Um, he was kind of a troubled man. He had, um, his character, uh, the character of Pete Stenning had a problem with alcohol. He mm. was, um, he was divorced from his wife and he was having to share custody of their child. And it was, and it was a very human story. It was a, and it was a very well done human story. You know, him trying to deal with not seeing his child, but once, you know, every weekend and, um, that, and then him having to deal with this, you know, world destroying crisis going on but it was every character had their own little foibles that made them very very human it was and it's made the peril all the worse because you know you're seeing real people who are going to die right he's trying to find love again in the midst of this chaos he is and he ends up you know becoming a better person but um uh, but i was going to make the connection um mr judd apparently had alcohol problems and he himself ended up dying very young because of, you know, life troubles like that. Because the Earth caught fire. The Earth caught fire. That's why he died. I mean... We're not, we're not spoiling the ending. No, no, no. I just... Uh, 
I have spent many hours trying to think of what could what you could call that movie <laughs> other than the day the Earth caught fire. That because they say something to that effect in the movie. It's like all all it took was for the Earth, Earth to, to catch, catch fire. fire. Yeah, but yeah, that is one of the things I liked about the uh, the whole thing was just the the human. The humans, the characters in it were very, very human. Mm-hmm. And that is what led, you know, gave the movie a sense of peril because you right. you were concerned about whether or not these people would live or die. Strangely, I found myself concerned about whether or not this romantic thing was going to develop. Oh, right. Oh, sure. Which is kind of a Romeo, not Romeo, a sort of a, a Titanic setting. Right. Uh, not to reference the film I love, but <laughs> a doomed love story. A doomed love story. Um, and yet... Before they realize that they're doomed, Pete is very uh, forthright about his attraction to Jeannie, the girl he yeah. talked to on the phone. Forthright, he's downright, hits her in the <laughs> face with a two-by-four, going, date me, whack, whack. I just thought it was interesting how she handled him, how she was a strong, competent she, woman. She was. She, was, she a was a great character. She was uh, still nice and thoughtful. Th- th- and vulnerable. She had a vulnerable mm-hmm. side, but I mean, Pete Stinning, she took no crap. Mm-mm. And she, it's, it's almost as if she dated a guy like that before. <laughs> but that was uh, Janet Monroe. Janet Monroe, and yeah. said that she also did not live terribly long. No, she didn't make it. I, I can't remember what. It was in the, it was in the commentary they talked about. It. She, didn't, uh, she didn't live very much long. No, she, did, she was very young when she died. And I can't remember if it was a suicide or what. But uh, she, and, yeah, she didn't live very much longer after mm-hmm. that movie. I think she did two other movies and then passed away. Leo McKern, though, I know he went on to do many more oh, things. Oh, heck, good grief. I mean, he was in uh, <laughs> Lady Hawk. That's the one I always remember him in, because he played the, the monk in Lady Hawk. Uh, he, Rumpole of the Bailey. Uh, yes, I was just going to say, uh, that Mortimer uh, series, he wrote the books, and then they made the, the cast mm-hmm. them with Leo McKern. Something Mortimer, I can't remember his full name, the author of the stories. Oh, yeah. But, uh... Uh, just a really, really good actor, and just everything he's in, he had a, he had a, he was a very, very harsh man, but he, but he had so it was that, you know, that harsh, grizzly old grump with a heart of gold is what he did well, and I have a feeling that's kind of probably what he was like as a human being. I remember seeing him, I believe, for the first time in a series called The Prisoner. Oh yes, in the yeah, with, with Patrick with McGowan. Patrick McGowan, yeah. Yeah, Liam McKern was. Number two, I believe, no, no, yeah, Leo in the village where everything was perfect. Everything was perfect in the village, except you couldn't escape. Yeah. So, yeah, I like Leo McKern. Who is number one? You are number four. Yeah, you are number, number six. six. Who's number one? You are number six. <laughs> Information. I didn't even get that until the very end of the episode. I was like, "You are number one! Oh my God, you are number six! Yeah!" <laughs> Such a cool show. That was that show was just brilliant. But that's a poor podcast for another day. So we like the cast of this movie. We love the cast of this film. Uh, everybody just did a bang-up job. Um, the gentleman who uh, played, uh, of course, like I say, it took place in the in a newsroom. Well, the editor of the film, uh, or the editor of the film. <laughs> the character playing well, the news editor. The character playing the news editor. Uh, oh, I can't even remember what his name was. I just looked it up a second ago. Hang on. <laughs> Intermission. Intermission? Yeah. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. The editor was uh, played by Arthur Christensen. And he, you, you watch his performance and you go, this guy's not an actor. 
But he feels different. He feel, doesn't feel like an actor, but man, he's flat throwing down the editor character. Well, it turns out he was the editor of a major uh, British newspaper, maybe in the Times, uh, but mm-hmm. he was the editor for, and he knew Val Guest, and Val said, come on in and play a newspaper editor and just be yourself. And it worked, because he had a force, he had a power to him that was just... It sounded he, like he knew what he was talking about. Boy, did he. I mean, <laughs> definitely more than... I mean, everybody else was acting around him, but he was just flat throwing down. No, you go here, do this. Stop talking about that, go there. And he did. He had this weird delivery that was monotone. You, no, go there. I don't want to hear it. Stay here. Get me a Coca-Cola. You know, it was just very... It was not, you know, any... A director would fire an actor that tried to do that, but for some reason, it worked. You totally bought it. He was totally there. He was in the zone. And everybody was. Every down to even the smallest cop who was showing somebody down the road who was played by Michael Caine. Yes, and you, you had to play it twice because I didn't catch it. It's like you can't see his face. You can't see his face, but he's t- driving people along like that. <laughs> yeah, I know. My Michael Caine sucks, but... <laughs> Uh, Michael, yeah, Michael Caine uh, played a traffic cop. It was his first movie, I believe. He was just a traffic cop showing Judd where to go. Tall, thin, young, and had hair like oh. me ten years ago. Oh. <laughs> well, Michael Caine has hair. <laughs> Not many people know that. I know. I'll stop. I'll stop. Anyway, it's okay. Um, something we haven't actually touched on yet is that yes, this is kind of a disaster movie, but it's also very anti nuclear warfare yeah there's a lot of dialogue to the effect of us blowing because that's what causes the whole problem is the simultaneous detonation right, of the u.s the u.s and the soviet, soviet union, union both at the exact same second detonated their biggest bombs they ever did uh, in actual history the biggest thing the soviets ever set off was something called the czar bomb uh, and it was 50 megatons 48 or so but generally it was designed to be a 50 megaton bomb and the biggest thing we ever set off i think was castle bravo and i think it was only like 20 15 or 20 and to, and to give you an idea of what 50 megatons is like and i they, they never mentioned a megatonnage in this movie but it would have to have been something pretty hefty because science, from a scientific standpoint it would take a lot to move something as massive as the earth like that but the 50 megaton czar bomb that the soviets detonated um they detonated it in northern siberia and seismographs it was picked up by seismographs in california three times oh <laughs> Now, do you know how that's possible? <laughs> Think no. of the Earth like a water drop, because it is fluid. You know, the top of the, even so it even the one side, then back, it, back it, again. It went like this, went around, came back around again, and then came back around again. So the shock wave circled the Earth three times, like a uh, like a like a drop of water. And that's 50 megatons was able to create a shock wave that powerful. So, you know, problem is if you're detonating something that big, I don't know that the planet would take it. I mean, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not a person to ask about the You're sci- not Leo McKern. I'm not Leo McKern. I'm, I'm not the science editor. But, you know, just from what little bit of science I remember from high school and college. But it's a neat prospect. And that's something the movie does. It makes you believe it. I mean, you know, I didn't have any trouble suspending disbelief on this thing at all. How about you? I mean, this was, you'd never even heard of this movie. What, what are your thoughts about it? Because this well, was the I've first time you... you told me about it once upon a I've time. I've told you. I did, did tell you about it like, once upon a time. Sean like strange movies. Odd movies with stupid titles. But what did you think? <laughs> uh, what, what's, what's your feeling on the film? I thought it was an interesting human story with a, a message kind of in the background. And I think they explored it well. 
without beating you over the head. Um, I think it did the disaster in a way that was interesting because of that human element. Right, because it was happening to real people. And it's different than other disaster movies. It's different than Godzilla because, well, for many different reasons. Well, but other than the fact that they were both anti-nuclear protest films. It's true. In fact, because even there's a scene in um, uh, The Day the Earth Caught Fire, the, the main character is at a, an anti-nuclear protest. Right. And a group of pro-nuclear protesters show up. And, of course, in the... In the fine history of human dignity and interaction, they get into a fist fight, so... And somebody falls into the water. Somebody falls into the <laughs> water, and Pete Stenning rescues them, showing you that he is the true uh, the true man, man about town. <laughs> Did you feel that, and I don't know, maybe I didn't answer your question, but do you feel that the film itself said one way or another, like... Bombs are good, bombs are bad. I mean, obviously... This oh, bombs are bad. <laughs> well, I mean, the calamity, bombs are bad. <laughs> the calamity comes about because of that, but they use those similar weapons to kind of right their wrong, so maybe these weapons have a purpose. Right, yeah. And they just haven't and, uh, you know, And, of course, I guess we should say spoilers. What they, what they try to do is they try to correct the 11-degree uh, the tilt by detonating four supergiant nukes in order, in order and try to correct it. Uh, honestly, I guess we're just going to go ahead and do the whole thing. You don't, at the end of the movie... Uh, of course, you know they work in a uh, they work in a newspaper. So at the end of the movie, they've got they don't know whether it's going to work. So they've got one set of headlines going: bombs a success, we live, and the other one: bombs a failure, we're done. And they have both of them hanging on a machine at the end, and then it ends with Judd giving a speech about how maybe now we could be better. And you never find out if it actually worked or not. Maybe if a machine can learn, learn the feel. The feel. <laughs> Maybe if a machine can actually give a thumbs up and mean it. Maybe dun, the rest of us can too. If they tried to sort it out, it would probably end up making the movie... Uh, there'd be another 15 minutes. And honestly, where it ended felt right. It's good that we kind of don't know. You know, let's let it kind of leave it up to you. At that point, Pete and... Uh, what was her character's name? Um, Janet's was a genie. Genie, yeah. yeah. The two of them have that moment of reconciliation. Um, I guess we have, we've spoiled the ending for how they deal with the world problem, but we won't spoil the ending of Pete and... Pete and Jeannie's <laughs> relationship, right. What it is that happens. What I mean, happens, what makes it, yeah. And the, think, the ins and outs of how they interact. And I think it's favorable overall what, yeah. what transpires. But once that was brought to resolution, it's sort of like, yeah, the world, it burns, it <laughs> It does, it doesn't burn, whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was a good movie. It was definitely a slow-paced movie. Yeah, it's it was. It's very much about the information that these characters are rattling off at breakneck pace. It is. The, the dialogue comes very, very fast. And, I mean, I've watched this movie probably a dozen times now, and every time I watch it, another little gem of dialogue that I just never paid attention to shows back up. Yeah, the first few minutes, they're talking about the local floods that they've had, and they want a splash page image, and somebody makes a quip like, I got enough splashes with this news bulletin and that news bulletin. <laughs> right. All the flooding. And it's just, it's yeah, it's super, super fast. Nobody takes a moment to pause and say, oh, oh, oh that was funny. Just like, no, it's just this is snap, 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 the way that we are. Because in a way, that's the, you know, that's the that's the speed and the tempo of, a new, of an editorial floor, you know, of the editorial room of a newspaper. 
it's you know just zap 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 quick we got to get this stuff down we got to get it done put it down quick 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 i did think a little bit about godzilla the americanized godzilla oh, where raymond burr is was, a reporter oh right right he's been sandwiched into all these little scenes in the movie right and he's writing his reports and there's even one part where he's looking out the window as Godzilla is rampaging. Right, that's kind of, yeah. Pontificating about the future of humanity. Future of humanity, this force that has come to Tokyo and leveling, yeah. That was very much a look what your... Look what your... Look what your bombs have done. They've made done Godzilla to people. Yeah. this monster. But that was, in the American version, you didn't get so much of that as you did in the original Godzilla. Oh. That well, was very the, much anti-America. Sure. Or at least anti-nuclear. You know, because weirdly enough, Godzilla Godzilla was only partially, you know, originated by uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was mainly about, you know, when we did the uh, Castle Bravo test, the biggest one we've ever let off, um, the fallout hit a uh, Japanese fishing boat. The Lucky Dragon. The Lucky Dragon, very sadly, uh, improperly named. And the entire crew died of leukemia because they were just exposed to it all, and the, that's what Godzilla was made off of. Although you will f- hear all that in the Godzilla podcast that we, we have, have done it. in the past <laughs> that uh, you that we will edit one day and give to you. I did think that the day the Earth caught fire felt more like a disaster movie, less of a politically motivated piece. But oh, yeah. that's me viewing it today without any of the concerns swimming around in my head that the people of the 60s had about nuclear weapons. Right. I know that we have nuclear weapons and they don't especially... Well, we don't have any nuclear weapons because Superman threw them all into the sun Super in 1987. In 1987, yeah, that's right. So, the quest for peace. Which was my favorite Superman movie for a long time. I'm it's sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, 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 okay. And even as a little kid, I was like trying to rationalize how Mariel Hemingway's character could breathe in outer space, but let's not go there because it's it's, it hurts. Or flicking peanuts into a mirror in a bar. I, oh, that's Superman 3. Was that Superman 3? Oh, that's Exposure right. to the false kryptonite. That's right. I, I, Pat, three, <laughs> Superman 3 and 4. But I, they're mm, equally... One yeah. of them had a better budget and was abysmal. The other one had a terrible budget and was abysmal. I sided with 4 as being superior in its intentions. Well, it 3 was, was just... A, we're really getting off topic, aren't we? We're off topic, okay. <laughs> but Nuclear Man was the result of Superman throwing all the missiles yes. into the sun and Lex Luthor. <laughs> and how did and how they how they got Gene Hackman back for that, I will never know. Well, there's a scene where he's behind a whole pile of money, and I think that that's actually telling. That, that's, that's how they got him back. They backed a dump truck of money up to his front door and dumped it into his dry pool. So speaking of movies that slap you in the face with their message, that one was... Very offensive. <laughs> no, it didn't just slap you in the face. It tattooed it across your retina. Yeah. Poured it down your throat, held your nose until you swallowed it. <laughs> but it's interesting that this film is a European, well, a British, British production. British yeah. And uh, it's just interesting to see their perspective because Godzilla was Japanese. Japanese. And most American disaster movies, well, like most Twister or well, nuclear. If you especially if you want to go for nuclear disaster films, all of ours. You know, in the 50s, were giant bugs. <laughs> That's how we manifested the the nuclear threat in something that was so ludicrous it wouldn't scare people out of the theater. They couldn't have. You couldn't have made, you know, you couldn't have made true nuclear disaster films like that in the 50s. Nobody in, nobody in the 50s would go see it in, in the United States because people were horrified and terrified of the concept of a, of a nuclear war as well. They should have been. <laughs> I mean, there's a wonderful book called The Last Babylon, which uh, was written by Pat Frank in, uh, I believe, 59 and published in 1960, where uh, he details what would happen to a small Florida town 
in the event of a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. Mm. And it's all from the standpoint of this one uh, guy who lives in this small Florida town and how this small town, which is surrounded by Air Force bases. I mean, it is basically this little island of no fallout in the middle of a destroyed Florida. And as the movie, per, or movie, as the book progresses, you find out more and more about the state of the United States and what is. And in fact, my hometown of Abilene is mentioned as being atomized. Wow. So, yeah, that was like, whoa. But it's an incredible story that should have been made into a movie in the early 60s. But there's no way. That movie would have terrified people into not seeing it. And today, I don't think there's a real, there's no real market for movies about nuclear disarmament. As you mentioned no. earlier, it's all about terrorism. It's about and... terrorism. That's what scares us now, because with the Soviet Union gone, we, the for some reason, that has made the threat of nuclear war go away. And honestly, it's still there. Russia still has all those nukes. Mm-hmm. And with the current crisis going on, you know, we might start worrying about that again. It reminds me of our previous podcast about North Korea and all of its posturing. Oh, and... yeah. Oh, <laughs> what did you say? That back, backwater despot? Backwater de- yeah, backwater <laughs> horrible despot, yeah. Uh, North Korea doesn't impress me at all. But they're stupid enough to start a problem, I think. And they, mm-hmm. I think. So, yeah, it's interesting to see how different fears. How, how the are same fear are, are, yeah, are looked at by different cultures. That's very true. And how the movies of today reflect different fears. So. Well, it's always that way. You know, the, the, the cinema of the age is reflects the consciousness of the geopolitical <laughs> reframification of the flivita gibbet. Would you like a jelly baby? Yes, I would like a jelly baby. With, the, <laughs> with that little bit. Just reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. Neutron, reverse, the, reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. The TARDIS should be free of the horse field. Wibbly, wobbly. Wibbly, 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 wobbly. I, I have no idea where he gets that. But yeah, every every culture deals with it in their own way. We dealt with it by being stupid, you know, mm. and the British, of course, dealt with it that way. The Japanese dealt with it by being poignant, but in a very, you know, got this kabuki theater absurdness about it. Oh, Godzilla morphed into... A character people love. Oh, he's a, you know, I mean, like the 2000, like like you will hear in our 2014 commentary, you've destroyed San Francisco, but please come back, Godzilla. We love you. Yeah. And even in the 2014, not to spoil too much of that podcast, <laughs> it's just, they're like, what do they call him? The King of the Monsters? Yeah, I yeah, think they do. I, I think yeah. they do. And the news, the King of the Monsters. King and of the Monsters. They're thankful that he saved them. Yeah. They just have a lot of city repair to do. Yeah, a lot of urban renewal. Well, San Francisco, it needed to get knocked down anyway. That's true. All these major cities get wiped out time and time again. All right. Especially in superhero movies. Absolutely. Especially in Man of Steel, man. There's no <laughs> there's no metropolis left, man. They're just, they may as well just knock the rest of it down, move about three miles down the road, and start Metropolis 2. I think that'll be addressed in the upcoming yeah. Batman versus Superman movie. Where we find out that uh, the Daily Planet is owned by Wayne Enterprises. <laughs> you think that's the case? I actually saw that on the internet. It was a picture of Bruce standing in front of Clark, and it said, mm. "It's it was the, the gist is that um, I own you." The one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Swear to me, Superman. Hmm. Oh, Ben Affleck. Anyway, <laughs> that will be a podcast. Oh for, yeah. Well, I guess next year. Yeah, that's true. We won't get that. We'll get that until 2015. 
Oh, well. But we've got bigger fish to fry this year with uh, Star Wars. But we covered that in our last podcast that we haven't (laughs) put out yet, so. Chronologically, I don't know if that is our last podcast. (laughs) I will see what happens. the last one we Last one recorded. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. No, it will be. That'll that'll go out before this one. Okay. Continuity will be restored. Will be restored, Captain. (laughs) All right, well, I guess uh, in in summation. Any closing thoughts? Uh, what brings you back to watch this movie multiple times? Because every time I watch it, there's I catch some little new piece of dialogue, some little nuance. It's a very densely packed film, and just one watch won't get it. Something that I forgot to mention, and it feels a little out of place now, but I'll mention it anyway. Yeah. Is that Edit. <laughs> <laughs> boop, boop. Janet Monroe. They played her up quite a bit in terms of seeing her bare back numerous times. Oh, yeah and having the camera up on her shoulders while she's in bed, and everybody's sweating because of the heat. Sure. But it's extra steamy. She's sweaty, steamy, naked. (laughs) I was surprised. This was a picture in 61, black and white. Well, it's odd. The British have always, their sensibility has always been anti-violent more than it is anti-nudity. Nudity's never been a problem. In fact, in the mid-70s, there was um, a miniseries called I Claudius. Uh, Derek Jacobi, uh, Patrick Stewart, it was just basically this this tour de force of British television acting at the time. And, I mean, John Rice davies is in it. I mean, it's just... It's this cat. This cast is... Uh, Brian Blessed. I mean, this cast is just, you know, if it, if it were... If this cast were nuclear, you couldn't look at it because it would burn your eyes. But it's an incredible miniseries. In fact, if you ever want to watch it, we should definitely kick it in. But there's new... It, it, it's, it's about, you know, the rise and fall. Well, not really the fall, but just a small slice of life in the lives of the emperors of Rome, you know, Claudia being, of course, who it's all about. But they had nudity through that because they had native women from the dark continent of Africa doing dances and stuff for them, and they were all topless. Nudity's never been a big issue with them, whereas violence, I mean, there are uh, certain, you know, uh, Clockwork Orange, of course, was so violent they took it out of uh, British theater because they were incensed. Of course, Kubrick took it out himself. Which it's is so interesting. how powerful like, he was. Those Americans and their nuclear weapons. And yet the fact that they're very uh, chaste in their cinema. To, yeah. And yet the, <laughs> the Europeans, well, the Brits. Well, like, Brits technically are sure European all, But now. don't have any explosions. No, expl- uh, no blood. How just, do they re- reconcile modern Doctor Who, I wonder? Uh, well, it's Doctor Who. <laughs> Doctor Who can do what Doctor Who wants. That's just interesting. I wouldn't mind a little more nudity in Doctor Who. <laughs> Jenna Louise Coleman's hot. <laughs> hey, you saw Matt Smith uh, take a shower that I don't time. care. I don't want to see Matt Smith. <laughs> Matt Smith can stay as clothed as he wants. <laughs> Same with Peter Capaldi. I love the man, but I don't, you know. Okay, well, we've, we're delving into strange shit. We're, we're, we're going off in tangents, but hey, th- we're all about tangents here at the Cinema Filibuster. If one thing, if A leads to B, which leads to three, then we're going to do it. because that sounds like algebra. That is algebra. That's how we, uh, that's how we roll here. We talk about one thing and we end up going to talk about another. But it's that's a what makes it, It's what makes us charming. Whatever keeps the clock ticking. Whatever keeps, whatever keeps the rest of Congress from talking. Exactly. That's, that's <laughs> what we're going to do is continue this filibuster. Oh, gosh, Mr. Smith. All right. Well, I can't think of anything else to add. Neither can I few things we could take away (laughs) and probably will (laughs) well this has been fun as always sean Uh, it's uh, same here john i uh, i relish these very much now if we could just find somebody to find a uh, a sponsor to run a commercial over top of this a couple times so we can get paid for it then hey any takers any takers 
All right. Well, until next time, I'm Jonathan Solzbach. And I am Sean Hastings. We do thank you for your patronage. Absolutely. And for listening. Until next time, adios. Color us gone. And now, the credits. Intro music by Matt Steiner. Outro music by Enrique Dib. Show concept and creation by Sean Hastings and Jonathan Solzbach. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. <laughs>